This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Pete Kunze. My guest today is Justin Owen Rollins, Assistant Professor of Media Studies and Film Studies at the University of Tulsa, and the author of Imagining the Method, Reception, Identity, and American Screen Performance. The book was published by the University of Texas Press in 2024. Hi, Justin. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Pete. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is mine. Uh, to begin with, uh, can you tell us a bit about your background and training? Sure. So I have a combined PhD in communication and culture and American studies from Indiana University, Bloomington. So my training is it was primarily in the cultural histories of North American media, media culture, reception studies, um, that kind of thing. Great. And, and so... Um... I imagine, if I'm correct, that this project came out of your dissertation. It did. It did. Um, it's. Uh, it, I don't know how this experience was for you, but for me, it's a very particular process of. Uh, mm-hmm. I wouldn't call it quite adaptation, right? But um, the dissertation certainly informed the book. Yeah. So, can you tell us a little bit more about that that process of mm-hmm. revision, expansion, deletion? Burning. <laughs> um, I, I know a lot of our listeners are, are early career scholars. So, um, and, and yeah, as you mentioned, I myself just published my my book out of my dis, mm-hmm. and it was a a major facelift. Um, so, <laughs> I, I'd love to hear about how you uh, dealt with the slings and arrows of your own book writing. Yeah, and I, I I'll preface this by saying I think there are a number of different schools of thought for the relationship between a dissertation and a book, right? Um, There seems to be a a cottage industry of books about making a book out of a dissertation. For me, uh, there were a couple of different uh, strands of thinking. Um, You know, there was a a number of pragmatic considerations. My dissertation was uh, very uh, long, much longer than I thought a book should be. Um, And so I needed to think about where it made sense to streamline the argument. Uh, I don't know if this is your experience in, in your dissertation, but in going back over my dissertation after I uh, finished, 
I found that it was a bit overly repetitive at times. So thinking about how to how to make a more effective and efficient um, argument. And I think there were also just, you know, there's just the natural evolution of the project as you continue to read and 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 think about it. Um, and then there's the more esoteric uh, consideration, which is, um, you know, who is this book speaking to? Um, it's no longer a committee. It's now a much broader audience and and a much uh, broader world. Um, and what is my voice as a writer? So for me, what that looked like was, you know, slimming the the project way down and then kind of rebuilding it and reorganizing it um, historically, adding um, uh, a few different chapters um, and uh, 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 condensing some of the the, the prehistory of method uh, was much, much larger in the dissertation. And here it went from I think 60,000 words down to about 12,000 words. Um, and so really thinking about what, what's the, what's the, the, the narrative thread I want here? Who am I speaking to? What's my voice? How, how do I make this, uh, uh, uh make sense for a, a larger readership? Great. So the question I have next for you is kind of a, uh, a, a broad one. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's just, what drew you to the method? Why, why the method as your your object of study? Yeah, it's uh, that's a great question. In part because I think it's a I think working on the method is a double edged sword. Uh, it's on the one hand, method acting has absorbed so much of the oxygen in conversations about stage and screen performance for the last seventy years that there's been a lot of ink spilled, a lot of a lot of arguments uh, in print and on online about. Um, what method acting is, what it isn't, uh, people going to method, and so on and so forth. And I, you know, I came to this in a kind of funny way in that I was working on a a, a project for a seminar, and it was about this really terrible John Wayne movie where he plays Genghis Khan. Um, and one of the the strangest things I kept coming across in the reception discourse was people saying. Marlon Brando would have been much better in this role than John Wayne. And so, you know, aside from, or in addition to the kind of obvious, you know, history of, uh, of uh, white actors doing yellow face performance, I thought, well, what are the assumptions here about these people as performers? Um, and so I dug a little bit deeper and deeper, and I just came across this fascinating body of reception material about how people made sense of Marlon Brando. And I knew enough about the kind of tenets of method acting at the time to know that the way people were talking about Brando's acting as method had very little relation to actual method tenets. And so that that's where the project started. And the more I dug and the more I looked across different historical uh, eras, the more of that I found. And to, to the extent that... Um, I, it's it's become an entrenched way of thinking about and talking about screen acting and it's kind of evolved beyond even needing to mention the word method oftentimes which i think is really fascinating um and that's where i in the book i talk about this concept of methodness i needed to think of some way of talking about this received idea of method acting and actors that was that bore some some connections, some historical uh, connections to 
actual method acting, but in many ways has transcended um, the 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 philosophies and techniques that are, um, you know, technically associated with method acting. Yeah, that that really resonates with me. I remember uh, years ago when I was a graduate student talking with a, a crusty senior scholar, media historian at SCMS. And they just said uh, over a glass of wine, well, you know, all history projects are really the same. You're basically just arguing it's been happening for longer than you realize, and it's more complicated <laughs> than you realize, um, which at the time I rolled my eyes. And then I went and wrote my own media history, and I'm like, I ended up <laughs> arguing the exact same thing, right? That yeah. it's been happening longer, and and it's more complicated than you realize. And it, it, I feel like every sentence I wrote could have been like, well, actually, when you look closer, and, and I feel like I feel like there's a lot of corrective in your work as well. Yeah. When you agree that it's like, yeah. you know, the way that we use, you know, um, for you the method, for me the Disney Renaissance, the way we use these terms in popular discourse actually don't hold up upon historical analysis, right? Um, so, but we'll dig into that more today, right? So, yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think it, you know, one of the things that that I think you and I both wrestle with, I know I certainly wrestle with in this book is that, you know, I am one person trying to talk about this concept that has really gripped uh, popular culture in the US for, you know, more than half a century. And so how do I contribute to that discourse without kind of falling into some of the historical traps that have, that have bedeviled a lot of really smart people doing really important work? Um, and I think that's one of the great challenges of talking about method acting is trying to carve out your analysis in a very noisy room with people who um, are, um, you know, in terms of uh, kind of popular discourse communities, not scholarly discourse communities, uh, those popular outlets where they are, you know, rehashing kind of old, old, worn out and incorrect um, uh, understandings of of method acting. I mean, the Jeremy Strong example is a, is a very obvious one, right? Where you know uh, a small group of of us uh, film nerds and acting nerds can can crow about this on Twitter, right? To our collective following of of you know five thousand people, um, but Variety magazine only needs to you know rehash some uh, kind of reductive. Uh, summary of the New Yorker profile, and that's immediately consumed by, you know, 200,000 people or something, right? Um, so I'm very cognizant of the fact that there, when working on reception, uh, I am one very small node in a much larger matrix of of this broader interpretive landscape that we all reside on. And and that sets up my next question nicely, which is that you know the, the studying of acting and performance within our field, film studies, is 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 vibrant, right? Mm -hmm. And goes back to you know at least as early as James Naramore comes to mind for me. Um, mm -hmm. And and this is someone who's just appreciated this work from afar, but also thinking about uh, scholars like Cynthia Barron and Sharon Carnegie, and then Isaac Butler's more recent book. And so I'm just curious about how you see your work in conversation with those folks and kind of furthering this conversation that you see um, by, by your own words is kind of a, you know, I, I believe you said it was a, was it noisy or loud or at least one where, you know, mm -hmm. it, it you admit that there's a lot of work that's been done here already, and I think mm -hmm. that this is one of the challenges that a lot of us face is when we want to talk about something that has a a pretty solid foundation and find a space for ourselves within it. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, the work that you mentioned, you know, um, uh, and, and there, there are, there's a lot of work that's been done over the last, oh, uh, especially the last decade or so, but you can go as far back as, you know, Naramore's work and, and the work of several other folks. And that's doing really vital um, service in carving out a space in the film text for for a critical understanding of how acting creates meaning, how it contributes meaning to the overall significance of you know of the film. What uh, um, how we can, especially with someone like Naramore, how we can uh, uh, kind of take on an analytical frame. He talks about the performance frame for how we would study uh, the the way that meaning is generated by performance in a film. Um, and you might notice that the recurring uh, uh, thing here is we're we're talking about film centric analysis, and that's incredibly important because you know historically, uh, film and media studies has not paid too much attention to uh, to screen acting. Um, we we attended far earlier to the idea of the star, you know, the celebrity, right? Um, but not to the craft of performance uh, on screen. And so my intervention is is to really work with the the screen centric um, uh, approaches to performance and think about well, what happens uh, uh, contextually, paratextually, like how are those meanings created in those spaces outside the film contributing to how we attach meaning to performances on film, to film performances? Um, because in my own training as a reception studies scholar, I know that there's a lot of that work happening outside of those things. I mean, some people, you know, some people may not even um, watch a movie, but they consume a lot of trailers. Um, I, I talk about this a bit with work on Tom Cruise that, you know, um, far more people have experienced Tom Cruise cinematic stunt work by watching making of uh, shorts on YouTube and trailers than have actually watched the Mission Impossible films, right? Um, so just thinking about how those how those spaces outside of the film can become really important venues for helping us make sense of how how screen performance takes on meaning. And I think that's a space where we look to understand how an idea of method acting has taken on a life of its own and largely superseded the practices of, of method acting and how it ends up drawing in all of these different people who are not method actors but they can get sucked in the Jeremy Strong's and the Montgomery Cliffs and the Daniel Day Lewis's they are not method they're not method actors and they have all in their own you know respective ways articulated as much but there's this gravitational pull and this received idea of method acting that kind of gets sucks them in and and brands them as as method actors either explicitly or we get the kind of discourse about you know Daniel Day Lewis stayed in character for the entirety of this film and became a cobbler and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so I, i'm hoping we can take that a step further and i apologize for this question being reminiscent of a dissertation defense but uh <laughs> I, i'm hoping you can talk a bit about mm -hmm. methodology because you know, I, I think this is the thing that constantly fascinates me about the work we do is mm -hmm. 
how do we do it? <laughs> right? right. I mean, you know, um, and, and what are the ways into these questions? And and I dabbled a bit in performance analysis recently and realized that I really had to I had to think of new methods for how I had normally done my own research, right? And thinking right. about, you know, like do you do thick description, right? And and thinking about different kind of facets of paying attention to gesture and voice and um yeah. corporality, right? Um mm -hmm. But I, I want to hear you talk. So, like for you, when you were kind of coming at method from, um, let's say the 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 angle of reception, right? How mm -hmm. did you kind of structure your research so you could tell this story? That's a great question, and this is something that I puzzled over for a, quite a long time because there, um, I think that there's a, a, a there are two intertwined, entangled um, methods that I uh, that I employed here which is, um, you know, historical analysis and discursive analysis. And each of those, um, ha they, they are so uh, uh, generative in terms of, of what they can yield. But for someone like me who is uh, obsessive about uh, trying to be a, a completist, there are a number of, of, of real challenges in terms of where do you draw your boundaries so that you're not doing uh, uh, you're not just uh, drafting and researching until the end of time. Um, and, you know, when working on a dissertation, that's one of the ways that my my advisor and my committee were great and just just saying, you know what, you just just stop there and and work with what you have. But, you know, uh, once you are working on your book, there's not as much of, of that, right? You don't have as many of those guardrails. So that's where I... Um, that's one of the primary motivations behind uh, breaking this book down and reorganize it into a series of vignettes so that I was, so I was artificially circumscribing um, the extent to which, uh, you know, um, I, I framed this particular chapter diachronically and just the, how much of the the uh uh the extent of the discourse that I looked at synchronically. So um in some cases those decisions are made for me by the availability of materials. Um uh in in the case of something like um the chapter on James Dean, just to give one example, uh, that chapter is built around a body of letters written to Hedda Hopper. And uh we we have to acknowledge that the letters that Hedda Hopper retained and donated to the Herrick Library are not indicative of all of the letters that she received, right? Um, but they still can be um, uh, uh, illustrative of how many audience members made sense of James Dean, tried to work with Hedda Hopper to appropriate and uh, uh, an interpretation of James Dean toward their own kind of ideological ends. So, you know, I, I found as a, as a reception scholar that, you know, um, and as someone who has long approached my work historically, that uh, doing discourse analysis works really well with historical analysis. At the same time, uh, the things that make them so generative also make them incredibly challenging to rein in. Um, this book could have easily been 500 pages. Um, I don't know that anyone would want to read that, but um, 
but there's just you know there's so much raw material um that trying to rein that in and trying to to kind of elicit the the core threads that i think are 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 worth taking away um that was one of the biggest challenges at work here this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright chloe blazer for brunch find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Yeah, I, I certainly empathize with that kind of kill your darlings mentality, right? Because on the one hand, you're like, look at this cool thing I found. And on the other hand, you're like, I've got to keep someone's attention um, for, mm-hmm. you know, the space. And then also presses, of course, only give us so much room, right? So we, we have right. to learn to, to cut ourselves <laughs> down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'll, again, I'll save that for my I'll save that for my therapist. Um, so, <laughs> you talk a lot about paratexts in your book as yeah. well, and I, and so I was hoping that we could talk about the cover of your book in, in part because I have cover envy. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's a really great cover. Um, oh, thank you. And uh, and I hadn't looked closely at it until I read your book. Um, so for those listening at home, uh, the cover of, of Justin's book is a, a very sultry Marlon Brando uh, leaning up against. Um, I guess a wall um, and with his leg up and a script on his leg and a cigarette in his hand. And there's, you know, this kind of puff of smoke coming out of his mouth. And in the background, there are some men who use wheelchairs um, sitting at a table. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of becomes a useful framing device for you. Can you, can yeah. you talk a little bit more about, um, I mean, no one's going to, no one's going to criticize you for throwing Brando on the cover of the book, but, uh, <laughs> but, but why do you think this image of Brando in particular yeah. is, is evocative? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, yeah, thank you. Thank you for your kind words about the cover. It, it was a process to get it. I didn't know that I was going to get this cover until uh, relatively late in the process. Um, it, so this is an image. I, I allude to this, uh, or I kicked the book off with this, but it, it, this is an image that is uh, from Life Magazine's uh, series of photographs of Brando as he's preparing for his very first film role in The Men. In The Men, he plays a soldier who is um, uh, uh, hit by a sniper and um, uh, loses the use of his his legs and has to. He goes into this VA um, uh, uh, facility and tries to kind of uh, regain his strength and. So what Brando does is he goes to a VA facility in Birmingham in Southern California for a month and he he immerses himself in the culture there and he tries to live everyday life like someone who does not have the use of his legs. And um, that work, that preparation work is something that Life Magazine uh, documented extensively had featured in two different 
profiles of Brando before the men came out. This photo didn't end up getting published in uh, uh, those life features. And it's one of the few photos from that shoot where he's shown, quote unquote, like not preparing, right? He's not immersed. He's standing on top of the wheelchair in instead of sitting in the wheelchair as he is in in so many of the, the life magazine images. Um, and so there's so there's that there's this kind of moment of all right here's this is not the story that that is put forth about brando we're given brando engaged in this process that is extraordinary yet also continually framed as elusive that we we as an audience can't really access his genius it's kind of it's a black box um i also use this image because brando is not a method actor and that's a bit of a uh, of the rhetorical trick I pull on the the reader, you know, in page two or three after I lay all this out. Uh, Brando hated being called a method actor. He he resisted that label, um, and yet even when he in the conclusion I talk about what happens when Brando dies, you know, the New York Times is still calling him a method actor. Stella Adler's daughter is writing to the New York Times, pleading with them, please stop calling him a method actor. My mom was his teacher. My mom did not teach the method. She hated Strasbourg. She hated the method. But these things have, there's real power in this, um, in this received idea of method acting that, you know, even when the kind of, I think we could arguably say that Brando is the most visible manifestation of method acting, um, when he is not a method actor yet cannot escape that label, I think that says something about what method acting actually is and what how we make sense of it how we apply that and so it's a bit of a trick on the audience um it's also i think a, a telling moment when the uh from the shoot and from the narratives that came out of that that life magazine shoot where we get this contrast between the narrative about brando that's put out there and um the reality uh, and as you alluded to, Pete, it's also just a really great image. Like he just looks really, really fucking cool. I mean, <laughs> pardon my French. <laughs> I was gonna say he looks uh, really hot too. I mean, like yeah, it's, it's, no, it's, it's, a, a, it's a it's a it's a sensual image of Brando, as, as many images of him were. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, for, for me, uh, you know, that kind of uh, important revision you make at the outset is a really useful way to kind of pull someone who is not um not working in 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 studies of film acting into your narrative mm -hmm. and into your work i i think that that's a, a really useful start and i'm hoping you know uh my next question is is another one that's like well i spent 250 pages doing this pete but i'm still going to ask it um <laughs> so how have you how have how has method been misunderstood? How has the method mm -hmm. been misunderstood? And 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 how does this create a space for you to introduce this idea of methodness? Mm -hmm. So without getting into the the weeds, because I think this is something that folks like um, uh, Sharon Kernicki and Cynthia Barron and others have done really exceptionally well um, in terms of of what uh, of what the tenets of method acting actually are. What I think has happened is that the there emerged at some point a received idea of method acting that emphasized the um, the idiosyncrasies of certain performers and conflated those with their acting style, right? Um, 
uh, that uh, conflated certain characteristics characteristics of star behavior of of unprofessional behavior um, uh, that that conflated a kind of um, connection to a character's inner life and a character's history with a kind of extreme, almost uh, 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 like psychological, um, you know, psychoanalytic understanding of of human nature. I mean, a lot of that, you know, there. This has been written about by uh, by Baron and Karnicki and a few others, but it's it's not a coincidence that the popular awareness of method acting really takes off the 1950s. Um, it it dovetails quite nicely with a kind of popular understanding, misunderstanding uh, about uh, psychoanalysis and looking inward and things like that, right? Um, however, it's it has already by that time um, become this really fraught um, this fraught idea. I mean, we have a we have a big breakup in the 1930s, 1934, between Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler and a group of others who are all members of this organization called the Group Theater. Sanford Meisner is in there, um, Harold Kuhlerman, uh, Phoebe Brand, Morris Karnowski, eventually Elliot Kazan. And it's all of these titans of 20th century um, acting either as practitioners, but more often than not as 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 pedagogues, um, and and for the first two and a half three years of the existence of this group, Lee Strasberg was their essentially their de facto teacher of this of this acting style. But people were almost from the get go in the group a little suspicious. Mm, I don't know this emphasis on like um uh you know uh bearing our souls and and making ourselves really vulnerable that that seems potentially exploitative um uh, still others among these so still other you know she's in paris after she and Kluerman and strasberg have gone to visit um the moscow art theater she stays uh she stays behind in paris and she actually studies with stanislavski and she comes back and confronts lee in front of everyone and you know she she does her version of the you know I knew Jack Kennedy I served with Jack Kennedy you served no Jack Kennedy, she tells him like uh, what you're talking about what you're teaching here Lee is not is not Stanislavski's system I studied with the man, just now here's and she has a whole chart here's here's a system, and it's that like we have in 1934 this schism right that is never resolved those two despise each other um uh for the rest of their lives. And yet by the 50s, their very different approaches to acting just get kind of collapsed into one. Same for Sanford Meisner. Um, you know, he and Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg had uh, in in many ways very different approaches to performance, to thinking about like what the what the the you know our instrument is as as actors. But you would have a hard time discerning that difference in the kind of uh, 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 popular discursive networks that just kind of mm, characterize it all as as method acting. Um, they are all part of a larger tradition, right? What we could call Slavic dramatic realism. Um, people like 
uh, Vakhtangov and Stanislavski and, and Bolislavski and Usmanskaya and so on and so forth. But, you know, that's a really big tent. And so to for, for those very different approaches to acting to get kind of collapsed and referred to as method acting and then to then get associated with Strasbourg and the actor's studio was something that drove people like Brando crazy. And he he argued against that um, just about any time he could for mm, 50 years to no avail. And so to me, there's something really, really fascinating about having the most visible, quote unquote, method actor constantly disavowing that to, you know, and having no effect um, that tells me that this thing has just taken on such an outsized presence in popular culture. And and so I think that we we tend to, in the way that we think about and talk about method acting, we tend to fall back on those kind of spectacularized ideas of method acting, um, which admittedly are the those kinds of of discursive tropes are just very uh very clickworthy. They're very uh interesting, they're very salacious, right? Um you know, uh, I don't know that as many people would be interested in getting into the weeds of Jeremy Strong's actual approach to acting, when in fact, it's far more compelling to read about how he, um, you know, puts himself through the ringer when he's playing Kendall Roy, right? It's far more compelling to see Brian Cox say, oh, I fear, I fear for his safety. Um, when that has little or nothing to do with anything that's actually method acting. Um, I think it just, it, it can't hold the actual techniques don't hold a candle in our kind of media culture to the far more spectacular uh, discourse of methodness. Yeah. And I'm hoping you can take that a bit further. Um, You, one of the Mm -hmm. things that I particularly appreciated in your analysis was its engagement with critical whiteness studies, right? Mm-hmm. I had a vague sense that method discourse had has always already been gendered, yeah. um, but I hadn't fully appreciated until reading your work how it was also racialized. So can can you offer us that kind of um, yeah. a brief snippet of the kind of the intersexual analysis you offer there? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So knowing knowing the history of method acting and the history of this kind of broader umbrella of dramatic realism, you know, you, you very quickly encounter that it's a, there's a very, uh, wide world of people, uh, practicing, teaching, um, these approaches, um, even within the smaller world of actual, like method acting method actors, right. You just look at the roles of the, of the actor studio and you realize, oh my gosh, there are all, you know, uh, I didn't know many of these people, you know, were, were part of that, that tradition. Um, so there's that, right? There's that kind of obvious that that juxtaposition. So in looking at the the reception around around people, looking at the reception of you know someone like uh, uh, Sidney Poitier who studied at the Actors Studio, and someone like Marlon Brando who um, you know only very very briefly did, and he said he didn't actually get anything out of it. Um, one of the things I kept running up against is just the kind of affordances in in methodness around um, white performers, that there's a kind of um, there's a kind of 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 uh, praise bestowed on white men 
for the labor of inhabiting another, right? Uh, the labor of of uh, becoming, uh, you know, a person with mental illness, or uh, the labor of um, <clears throat> of losing weight or gaining weight, um, or you know, immersing themselves in a VA hospital for a month. Um, there's a kind of of outsized praise given to those the 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 kind of received idea of the the work that goes into that conversely for uh for women for performers of color um there seems to be an assumption that um that there isn't as much work to get to a a, a place like that um in the book i talk about um uh, charlie theron and how the discourse around her in Monster and in Tully, both films where she underwent a kind of body transformation, you know, which is really, really extreme. I, I wouldn't recommend any performer do that. Um, I'm glad to see that there's there's more critical opposition to that um, in this day and age. But there's a big difference in how her her labor and her process was framed and received than in someone like Christian Bale, where the work itself was praised. Now, for someone like Charlize Theron, it was much more about, well, when will she return to her kind of uh, normative body type, right? Um, for uh, for someone like, I talk about um, Brian Ty Tyree Henry as well, and someone asked him if he was a method actor, uh, when he was doing um, the series Atlanta. And he was like, no, because there is no, if I tried to do what my white counterparts do in other productions, I would be fired. There is not the kind of allowance for me to engage in uh, outlandish behavior, to, to, to behave badly, to stay in character, things like that. So there's this, I think in its most kind of basic sense, there's a kind of wide uh, um, uh, uh, affordance given to white white actors under the kind of with the permission of methodness to to act badly, to act in extreme idiosyncratic ways, and those historically and to this day are not provided to performers of color. And I mean, and and you know, the industry. You can look at how the industry abets this in terms of um, who it cast for certain kinds of films, who gets award nominations and wins, right? Um, you know, it, it, it very much dovetails with um, the racialized way in which Hollywood um, tends to uh, 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 convey value onto people and the, the, the work that they do. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I I was hoping we could we could pivot a bit from. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess this isn't a, a total pivot, but I wanted to think about the resistance to method, 
right yeah. you, you mentioned both mm -hmm. um people worried about methods implications on the actor's well-being and and actors vocalizing that there's a certain level of um one, one wants to say almost egotism that comes with with yeah, method yeah. right you yeah. know because you're supposed to be working with a collective and yet one person is perceived as doing method and, and as you know they want to be addressed as character or sure. throwing it you know with Jared Leto shutting down the production of Morbius for prolonged periods because mm -hmm. he wants to stay in character with his leg braces and use the restroom like in character yeah 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 <laughs> um you know Daniel Day-Lewis and I, I was thinking uh you probably remember well the discourse around uh, Jim Carrey and Man in the Moon, right? Um, right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, uh, who is not a method actor? Mm -hmm. um, and and, and I, I think the example that comes to mind for me, um, and maybe the story is apocryphal, right, is this kind of confrontation between Laurence Olivier and Dustin Hoffman <laughs> on the set of Marathon Man. And, right. and I kept trying to find, like, what the jab was. And it kind of varies on the account, right? Like, he says, like, oh, why don't you just try acting or, like, yeah. do your job or something like this, right? My, but, dear, my dear boy, have you tried acting, that kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, um you know, uh, I guess the question can alternate between, say, either, you know, what are the competing traditions at mm -hmm. the same time or more so um, it, it might also yield into a, a question of, um, you know, the kind of the pushback from especially from within the acting community yeah. towards this this approach. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that, you know, uh, we can we can look back to the 1970s, early 1980s and see, see a shift in, in the reception of method acting um, away from one that was like primarily a kind of uh, a reverence, even if it kind of misunder uh, 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 an acknowledgement that, that it's different or strange. I think there's a shift uh toward not only just the the outright entrenchment of methodness where we see the word method being used less and less and we see instead talk about absorption and commitment and staying in character and these kinds of you know uh um signals um of of methodness but i think it really becomes uh binarized i think it becomes a matter of um uh reverence or revulsion that there are these two extremes and we can, you know, we can look at like how people react to Jared Leto um, as someone who it just uh, engages in behavior that is disruptive, that often overshadows the movie, you know, the, the, the ultimate uh, uh, film itself. Um, we can see a, the kind of way in which Daniel Day Lewis's performances are, are, are routinely, um uh understood as you know maybe a bit silly uh in the way he stays in character but ultimately it's the you know the end product is like oh my gosh here he is again showing off his extraordinary you know ability to act and and of course that's tied back to his performance um i don't see a lot of middle ground i don't see a lot of uh of popular effort to parse this um these received notions of acting i see people very very quickly falling into to one or the other camp um so when you see something like 
you know, I don't know if we'll get another Daniel Day Lewis movie anymore, but when you see the New Yorker profile of Jeremy Strong, you know, it you can very quickly very quickly see how it follows a familiar trajectory. Um uh there's a movie I talk about in the book that I think really captures this this essence, which is Tootsie, um, a film that is um entirely about a kind of implied and mutually understood idea of a method actor. And everyone hates this guy. He's insufferable. His agent tells him no one will work with you because you argued about the motivations of a tomato, right? Um, just as one example. But the thing is, is that his process works. He is reviled until everyone realizes that, oh, actually his process makes him a phenomenal actor and he fools everyone by his performance, right? So that film, that film is kind of pivoting on these these two uh, around these two extremes, in in the 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 popular reception of of method acting. So I there are so many more people who aren't method actors than are, but part of the problem is that far more people are like Marlon Brando, and that they just keep getting kind of sucked into this this um, this black hole of methodness, um, even as they will explicitly say i am not a method actor right um but but i think that it's it's also you know i talked about the kind of how how this reception aligns quite well with our attention economy and with you know uh our understandings of stardom and and things like that i also think that it it probably is indicative of just how much dramatic realism shapes screen performance these days. Like we don't have those, we don't have those firm divides anymore between Lawrence Olivier's and Dustin Hoffman's. It's much, it's much murkier, right? Um, we don't have, you know, method acting isn't as widely taught um, as it was in the 1980s. Um, there are many more traditions now that are that are part of the process, but dramatic realism informs just about everything we see in you know North American film and television. So you know, I could also see it being plausible to many people that oh well, it seems like it's method acting, right? Because there's that conflation, and so anyone could potentially be a method actor if they're a if they're a weird you know star, uh, then. Uh, <laughs> people might be predisposed to think that they they must be doing method acting. Um, the most recent uh, thing I saw is uh, Isaac Butler. Or not, sorry. Um, oh, my gosh. Um, uh, Austin Butler. Sorry. Austin Butler. And, you know, the we'd already gotten the kind of methodness around him and uh, his role in Elvis and how he carried that 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 uh, performance over into the uh, award season and the way he would talk, right? Um, and uh, I'm seeing this again in people talking about how he would lose himself in character while filming, you know, Dune Part Two. And if you look at the the source material, these interviews, he, he, you know, Butler's not talking about himself as a method actor. He's just talking about himself as an actor. And he's, you know, talks about, you know, what he does to prepare. And it's like, this doesn't read as, method acting, but it's the 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 discourse communities that take that up are kind of engaged in this well-worn practice of, well, he talked about getting into character. So that that's method acting, right? And then that kind of 
builds into preconceived understandings and and then we're kind of off to the races right um and i think there's there's really there's something really profound going on there um that's far outside the power of any performer right uh um and any one performance so i wanted to ask where is the method at today mm -hmm. like the literal method, not not what we've ascribed to be the method, mm -hmm. right? But I mean, you know, I, I don't know if you have a sense of what acting schools are or aren't teaching, right? We hear some people are coming out of the Meisner tradition, right? Mm -hmm. um, or they say, you know, we I, I studied with the the, the a student of so-and-so, right? Mm -hmm. um, so where is method now? Um, and at the same time, you know, do, do we see actors who are embracing like, no, I am in the method tradition. Um, that is a great question. I don't actually know where the the literal method is at right now. I mean, I will say, and this is um, this is something a few folks have talked about. Um, Isaac Beller talks about this quite nicely, but like, um, you know, the the method is overrepresented in our discourse. I think it's under. I think it's it's um, now one of many, many, many different approaches to performance that actors are getting in this day and age. I mean, the, you know, the, there are still, there are still a lot of people that practice, you know, the kind of Strasbourg inflected approach to performance. Same could be said for Stella Adler, the Stella Adler school still going strong. Um, you know, uh, still a lot of uh, Meisner adherence, you know, and there's just, there's, there have been subsequent generations of their students who put their own spin on things. You know, there's the, uh, you know, a whole, gosh, I have three or four generations now, people that can, have come out of the Juilliard tradition, right? Um, I think there's a lot of performers that are coming out of uh, improv traditions and the people who, you know, were um, uh, like improv comedy scenes and and the teachers kind of involved in those um, uh, uh, and those approaches. So I think it's just a much more crowded area. And I, uh, you know, there's still, uh, the method still exists. Uh, but part of the challenge is that it's just so overrepresented in terms of uh, the way that we talk about it. Overrepresented and misrepresented, right? I think that you make that pretty clear as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, 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 thank you for that. Um, what are you, what are you currently working on? Are you, have you, are you continuing to examine, um, the methods resonances or has your research headed in a new direction? So in my conclusion, uh, I, I returned to Brando briefly, uh, not only his, his, uh, his passing and how he's received in death, but also this very interesting thing that he tried to do in the 1990s, uh, where he, he tried to, um, uh, he worked with a cinematographer um, and uh, this this really this really great guy who I had the the privilege of getting to know and writing this book. Uh, they worked on trying to create a digital double for Brando. And now, you know, I I can't speak to what his all of his intentions were with that. My I'm given to understand that for him it was a matter of he was you know had grown rather tired of acting but he thought a digital double could do the work for him and so you know they did all of these scans of his face with the idea of you know creating that 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 
inventory that they could piece together and, and make performances. And, you know, they produced a, a very short film. It, it didn't do very well, but then it kind of largely went away. I think there's something, I think that's a, a very fascinating precursor to what's been happening, especially in the last few years with um, an increasing um, shift by some, some entities in the media industries toward um, uh, uh, bringing together AI and screen performance. Um, so one of the things that that's that's really left me um, uh, both fascinated and concerned is about uh, how our prevailing understandings of something like method acting can literally end up becoming encoded in um, uh, uh, you know uh, future screen performances. So that's where that's where the book book one ends and that's where uh, book two begins. Um, so the this next project is going to explore the historical and present relationship between AI and screen performance, how received notions of acting work among, you know, folks in the industry, audiences, critics, um, a lot of, there's a lot of really interesting kind of non-traditional um, players uh, getting involved in this. Uh, a lot of small tech firms, uh, legal firms who are um, trying to get on the ground floor of, of imagining uh, 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 these new, you know, AI digital actors. And so I'm really keen to try to make sense of what's going on there. Um, and that's, we'll see where that goes, but that's, that's where it's starting. <laughs> yeah. That seems like it could pull you into art and technology mm -hmm. and intellectual property law. And, uh, that, that sounds really intellectually uh, well, satisfying. And as, and as a historian, you know, this is a bit different for me because I'm used to dealing with, you know, talking about method, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, our methodologies, I'm used to sitting in an archive and working with, you know, somewhat static materials. I mean, gosh, trying to write about AI right now is it's it's head spinning. So mm -hmm. it's um, I I like it because it's it's a new it's it's pushing me to um, to think and write in different ways. But man, it's it it is an entirely different beast than than being in an archive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um... And and I appreciate the historical continuities you're drawing between what Brando was doing, and then I imagine some of the research that was uh, on like synth espions, right? And mm -hmm. um and and then I, as someone who who pays attention to live performance, I'm fascinated by these traveling hologram oh, gosh, shows, yeah. right? Yeah. With like yeah, well, obviously Tupac's the most obvious mm -hmm. one, but for for those of us who are more um you know opera nerds, the Maria Callas one I think is the mm -hmm. one that has been doing a lot more um in terms of its its circulation but this is a rich terrain uh and and so is the terrain you cover in your book we've only scratched the surface but that's the goal right um mm -hmm. <laughs> so so thank you for your time today justin um the book is imagining the method reception identity and american screen performance available now from the university of texas press and other online booksellers this is Pete Kunze, and this has been New Books in Film on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.